For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. Something that is broken is already more valuable than when it's whole, which is a profound statement to make. It's very Eastern. It's the opposite of Western perfectionism and cosmetic beauty and how we, if something breaks, we throw it away or we super glue it back together, pretending that it never happened. You know, when I hear sermons, I hear bits of that. I, I hear pastors saying, Jesus came to save you, and you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven, and that you, your life will be prosperous and perfect. And that does great damage to what Jesus actually did, which was to be resurrected as a wounded human being. Through his wounds, we are healed. These are wounds that do not fester, but they actually open into a new creation. So Kintsugi Master mending the fractured bowl several generations later with Japan lacquer, which is notoriously difficult craft technique to mend and then put in gold to accentuate the fractures. And the imagination creates through the fractures a river of gold, a mountain of gold. That's to me the best example of uh, new creation. I tend to think that at least, at the very least, through his wounds, our wounds will look different. Because Jesus is the great Kintsugi master. And as he's mending us to not devalue what the pains and darkness that we've been through, the traumas that we've been through, but somehow that leads into the new creation in some way. I don't fully understand it, but I, I think that's the kind of path that Kintsugi helps us to move into. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. The ancient Japanese tea ceremony is not about the tea. It's about connecting to nature and to guests in a way of simplicity, tranquility, and peace. But its meaning is also inflected by its location, along the Pacific Ring of Fire, where earthquakes and tsunamis shape culture and practice. What happens when your tea ceremony is interrupted by an earthquake and the beautiful ceramics shatter on the floor? Enter the Kintsugi Master. The thought of superglue and quick fixes doesn't even come to mind. Kintsugi is the Japanese slow art of repair that accentuates the fracture. As the teapot is reassembled, the Kintsugi master will infuse the fissure with Japanese lacquer and gold, seeking a new reality that acknowledges the event of rupture and offers a new way of seeing the brokenness. Today, Miroslav Wolf welcomes his friend Makoto Fujimura to the show for a conversation on his most recent book, Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. Fujimura is a painter who practices the Japanese art of Nihonga, or slow art. His abstract expressionist pieces are composed of fine minerals he grinds himself and paints onto several dozens of layers, which take time and close attention both to make and to appreciate. Mako and Miroslav discuss the theology and spirituality that inspires Mako's work, the creative act of God mirrored in the practice of art, the unique ways of seeing and being that artists offer the world, which in Mako's words, is dangerously close to life and death. 
They reflect on the meaning of Christ's humanity and his wounds, the gratuity of God in both creation from nothing, and the artistic response in the celebration of everything. Thanks for joining us today. Marco, it's so wonderful to have you join me here for this conversation on our podcast. Every time I speak to you, especially when we do so in person, I go away enriched. Uh, You have this, of course, wonderful sense of working with objects and being an artist, but you experience life in a deep way. You experience your faith and reflect Mm. on faith in a deep way. And the occasion for conversation is a wonderful book you've written. Uh It's a wonderful piece of art, and both as an object, but also as a written text. So thank you for the book. Well, thank you. I know that the book had a lot to do with our conversations for the last 10 years or so. I I remember speaking to you very early about relationship between imagination and creativity and theology, and, and you've been so kind to give me invaluable feedback. So in, in many respects, it, it, it even started with our conversation. So I want to thank you for that. And, you know, that what you're trying to do in connecting those dots, I, I hope I can fit in some of the links as an artist. A lot of learning on my part has happened in those conversations, which was wonderful. You know, when I think about you and your, your writing about your art, obviously I often think about you as artists because I have some of your pieces and enjoy them daily. But when I think about you and the art in context of the Bible, especially, I think of the illuminated Bible that you did, which was such a wonderful project, beautiful pieces of art. But I, I think primarily about you in relationship to a, a single family of two sisters and a brother. Mm-hmm. That's one text that I think you're in relation with. And the other text I think you're in relation with is the very beginning, the story of creation and Genesis. Mm-hmm. Genesis. Mm-hmm. I thought it may be useful maybe to organize our conversation mm-hmm. around these two biblical uh, texts. And let me then start at the beginning, uh, namely with Genesis, which is a story of creation. Yes, You've made the point that Art is, in some ways, follows in the footsteps of the creator, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that it repeats in some ways, if you yeah. want, the creation uh, I- itself. Could you speak more about that? Right. I start the book, actually, with what theologians call the aseity of God, which is God's all-sufficiency, which means God doesn't need us or the creation, and is perfectly happy without <laughs> any of that. So. Why did God create? God created because God is love, and love is generative, and love is always exuding extravagant creations of abounding in abundance. And I, the reason why I start with that is is we often connect human-centered way of looking at creation and demanding if God exists, this should happen, or creating cause and effect, which you can do. But I wanted to start from this grand artist who has absolutely no ego or no need to create a narcissistic way of creating like we do. And say that from that premise and that if you don't believe, if you're not a theist, this is the assumption that may help us to even communicate outside the boundaries of 
whatever institution of the church may prescribe to be necessary for a conversation about theology and art. And I think you have noted in one of the talks that uh, I hosted that the reconciliation between art and faith is very difficult. And so I think from that conversation, I began to think, well, maybe we should think about the unnecessary side of this extravagance of creation. I start with Genesis, obviously, but I I start with the assumption that God is love, and therefore God's gratuitous creation does not necessarily have to have either efficiency or bottom line purpose, uh, utilitarian purpose. It has purpose, but it, it doesn't have to be in the way that we understand it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fascinating. So that art may mirror precisely the gratuity of, of the creator. You know, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned the aseity of God and God not needing anything, in a sense, or God not pursuing, as Ronald Williams often puts it, that God doesn't pursue any particular interests of God's own. Whole creation is the interest uh, of God. You know, theologians make a distinction between uh, creatio ex nihilo, creation Mm -hmm. out of nothing, Mm -hmm. and making. So Mm -hmm. God creates, Mm -hmm. but we as human beings cannot create out of nothing, we Mm -hmm. we make. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering whether we are right, theologians, to think in those terms, whether there isn't in the arts something of Obviously, creation out of already existing things, but there isn't an element of creativity that something new gets to be inserted, something that wasn't there, something that came out of nothing that might fit the gratuity. Yeah, because when you follow that path from uh, God being this the artist, I make the case that he may be the only artist in that sense of connecting ex nihilo creation with making because there's a kind of a in in the incarnation god's other independence is flipped to dependence it is a a bit scandalous in the sense that we we don't understand this and and this this is almost a it's not only a miracle but it's almost gratuitous in its you know assumptions (laughs) And therefore, so that that kind of closes the gap, but, I mean, not only closes the gap, but creates a new path. But then the reality of the perspective from our, our way of understanding this incarnated God who lives among us and lives and then suffers and dies for our sake becomes a story about the inversion of the Genesis account into the everyday small miracles that we may experience. And art, I think, fundamentally reaches for that. And you don't have to be a theist (laughs) to do this. And when you are moved by beauty, when you seek something transcendent, even through transgressive act of breaking the normative barriers that culture sets up. Artists are doing the same in the reverse order. We are presenting a paradigm in which we are reaching out, maybe like the psalmist, shouting out 
with very honest, vulnerable <laughs> statements and screaming at maybe at the at the sky. But at the same time, something breaks through. I, I think because of the incarnation, I, I I certainly think that Christian paradigm allows for frail human voices to be received just because of the incarnation, but because the psalmists do this all the time. There's no pietistic boundaries around psalmists crying out to God and very honest, angry uh, sometimes. And so I, I, I wonder if art is connected with that. Yeah, that's interesting, kind of almost like a, like a bit of a protest uh, against yes. the encrustedness of, of the reality mm-hmm. of various, various mm-hmm. forms. And as you were talking about this, uh, I thought there may be a different way also in which artists break the ordinary. Yes. When I observe you work and what you talk about, mm-hmm. how you see that which you are, quote unquote, representing or which you are incorporating into your art, it seems like it's not an ordinary scene. Just. Mm-hmm. You have to have eyes to see what you see. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk to you about this seeing in a different way. Right. So I always talk about the difference between how, you know, we see things to identify and categorize and move on. That's our survival mechanism, right? That we, we, we only need to see a truck and identify as dangerous and move away. But if you're like me, an artist, you're noticing the beautiful rusted license plate <laughs> that, that just is glistening because it just rained. And, you know, it, it is not very Darwinian because, you know, <laughs> um, your friend has to, you know, say, Marco, get out of the way, you know, a truck is coming, you know. You know, we artists are the, almost anti-Darwinian <laughs> because they we <laughs> We kind of stay dangerously close, hovers mm-hmm. somewhat between death and life. And so the way we see, which I think Paul's writing nearly mirrors, he says, seeing with the eyes of your heart. What is the difference between seeing with the eyes of your heart and using the eyes to categorize? I think that gets at the heart, no pun intended, between merely using rational mechanism to, you know, identify something quickly and move on to deeply experiencing something that goes into an integrated mode of being. And that includes the spiritual. And Paul's writing seems to indicate that's how we cultivate and sanctify imagination is to let the sensory realities move in so deep, seeing, hearing, touch, taste, all those factors, let, let it become part of our prayer, become part of our natural way of existing. And that is essentially, to me, what artists are trying to do, in, even in the context of the accelerated culture that we live in, you notice something uh, that stays with you longer. And you have to marinate that into the core of our being. And somehow it, it, it becomes even newer the next time you encounter it. And 10 years after you look at it and say, this is again new. And that's what artists are trying to do, I think. 
You know, I, I was thinking whether there might be something analogous, and I think you gestured in that direction when you mentioned Paul and and the eyes of the heart with religious modes of seeing, because I sometimes think that, you know, famously, William James, when he spoke about conversion, mm-hmm. he spoke about conversion as everything for the person who had converted became new. They mm-hmm. saw the entirety of the world mm-hmm. yeah. in a new way. And I take it they brought, we bring a, a certain kind of experience, heightened maybe uh, sensitivity, mm-hmm. but also a, a kind of a fr- frame of faith. The creation yeah. becomes a gift of God. It becomes mm-hmm. a fresh and a new mm-hmm. given to us rather than this old, stale yeah. reality. And I was just, as you were speaking, wondering whether there's a kind of analogy between freshness of faith and the authenticity of artistic seeing and experiencing the world. Yeah, and William James observed something that was at the cusp of late modernity becoming dominant way. The rational is breaking in, and it's fascinating to look at artists of that time and observe. Emily Dickinson, for example, was observing the onslaught of this industrial rationalism that would take over and the traumatized culture because of civil wars and the, the the obvious bloodshed that was happening to culture and and then the great awakenings and all these people going to church and renouncing their sins and coming home and praising God. And she saw something of a corruption in that. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, there was there was something about the spectacle. Even as she perhaps valued the personal intimate connection with Jesus, who she called the tender pioneer, there's a tension built in literature from that time. And when we see works of Van Gogh or Cezanne or Picasso or Rock, you, you see the same kind of tension. But that's interesting also because as the modernity progresses, and you can see that in the work of somebody who we at the center have been in conversation quite a bit with, the German sociologist Hartmut Rosa. Hmm. He wrote this thick volume, 900 pages, it's now translated into English, called Resonance. And uh, what's behind it is a, a sense that in modernity, the world becomes almost dead for us, and it doesn't speak to us. And that fundamentally, human beings need a kind of sense of resonance with, with the world to feel at home in the world. And you mentioned Pentecostalism or, or surrealism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They may be modes of finding or looking for and experiencing resonance. I, I have to read that book because I think it's right on. that You look at a Kandinsky or you look at Rothko. Why these works of art, which came out around that time, a little later, but the world wars and the traumatic experiences that people had with the atomic reality in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and artists kind of intuiting, <laughs> they may not be able to articulate the thing, very things that we're talking about, but they're sensing something about the resonance that has escaped the church or, or traditional religions. And that framework is now a, a huge question mark out in culture and these people in the margins, you know, receiving them and incarnating them in, in, in their artworks and in their music and so forth. So that's fascinating way of understanding what I observed in culture. Yeah. And in some ways, escape, of course, religion as well, but escape, escape modernity as such, especially kind of utilitarian character. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. of modernity. Mm-hmm. Everything is calculated. Everything is mechanized. Yes. Everything is predictable. So that this surprising element of I entering a space and space is enveloping me, speaking me, telling me a story, mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. that seems to be escaping uh, from us. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier a kind of non-utilitarian character of art, and we're close to yeah. it right right now uh, yes. as well. And that's you associated this in terms of biblical stories with that family of Martha yes. and Mary and yes. uh, and Lazarus, yes. in particular with Mary pouring this bottle of costly nard. One whole year of work yeah. goes down the drain, so yes. that this incredible, <laughs> beautiful smell be be felt in 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 the entirety of the room. Aroma is there. You've compared art to this. Yes, yeah, because of a gratuitous nature of and and what Judas said, which was, this is such a waste, you know, you could have fed the poor, which is something that, you know, you're utilitarian right there, right? <laughs> something I hear all the time. I use these precious minerals like azurite and malachite and gold. And people say, you know, your work's beautiful, but aren't you worried about feeding the poor? And I, I totally get that. That's a, a pragmatic question. So I, I don't necessarily think it needs a pragmatic answer but, or, or even an extravagant answer. But I think Mary, first of all, understood what what it costs, what it will cost Jesus. She intuited it. She pro- probably could not have articulated it in, in the way that we can today, the costly sacrifice that Jesus will have to pay for all of us to gain access to the Holy of Holies. She she couldn't have articulated it that way, perhaps, but she saw in Jesus' tears in John 11, 35, when Jesus wept, which was also gratuitous. It was unnecessary, absolutely unnecessary, because he was there to raise Lazarus from the grave. So why didn't he just simply take Mary by the hand and go to the grave and raise Lazarus and say, you little faith, you know, mm. you should have b- believed in me. He doesn't do that, right? He literally wastes time with Mary weeping and and being angry at death itself the, the, to to and and that was provoked i think by seeing mary's emotion her perplexed emotion that her friend did not show up when she needed him the most and he came late intentionally right so so the, there's this fascinating drama taking place silent drama in front of us in in john 11 and then, of course, uh, her reaction to those tears. She understood how extravagant those tears were. In Judaic culture, I, I found in a Jerusalem museum these tear jars. Right? Yeah. Because desert culture, tears were very valuable. People collected them. And imagine what Jesus' tears would have meant for Mary. And so to her, her wedding nod that she saved up to have is nothing compared to that. And so that, that was her response to, and and as I note in the book, I perhaps this is speculative and it is, but, you know, Jesus didn't get to wash his body entering Jerusalem because he was arrested outside of Jerusalem. And wedding nod will last a month. <laughs> So you would assume that this was the only earthly possession that Jesus carried to the cross. Yeah, a kind of anointing. 
yes. with the aroma of, of sure. Mary's love. You know, my mother would often speak about tears. She, it was easy for her to cry. And so mm. she would often, not daily, she would uh, pray, go to pray in the mornings. Mm. And when she would come out, I would always see that she had mm. been wow. crying. And she was my first Christian teacher, theologian. Yes. And she would often ask the question, she said, I wonder why God gave us tears. Because only we are the animals who cry, right? And to me, it was always, always remained a, a question, almost wow. at the heart of our existence. Mm -hmm. I was reading, there, there's a book by Helmut Plessner, who is a German philosopher, entitled Laughing and Crying, where he analyzes yes. these two very different responses of the body. And, and he describes weeping as relinquishing self-possession. And in a sense, merging mm. with our own flesh. And th that seems to me what, what, what humanity is, not just reason, right? And I was mm -hmm. going to ask, is there something in artistic experience that, that, that resembles this merging of the self with the flesh, so mm -hmm. that the flesh is doing and not calculative reason mm -hmm. and manipulating technique, simply doing the work? My One of my close friends, who is a artist and curator, when I was sharing with him about Mary anointing Jesus in an extravagant way, he said, that's where all art is floating about. In that aroma, there's Johann Sebastian Bach and Da Vinci is floating around. And I, I love that image because <laughs> I, 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 think, I think the humanness of Jesus weeping. That's when he was fully human in, in that moment. He chose to be human. And perhaps as Anti Wright argues or shows us that the greatest miracle after the resurrection is that Jesus chose to stay human. <laughs> that somehow that staying with Mary, right, and weeping and wasting time with her. That moment may, I don't know, but you know, is that a moment when he decided that, no, this is what I am going to not only rescue, but identify myself with, right? So Jesus' wounds are still with him after the resurrection. He could have been anything, you know, he could have appeared, you know, in, in any form. But the, the fact that he chose to appear as a human being, and even more so, he chose to appear as a wounded human being. It means something to us when we are going through our trials and suffering and tears, to know that tears can be commingled with Christ's tears. And in some ways that the fragments that our lives always are mm, yeah. can be put together. Yes. Maybe not entirely returned to the position where we were right. before, but in some ways uh, a new beauty can emerge. And you mm -hmm. have reflected quite a bit around yes. it, around that question with, in, in, in respect to the, the established practice in Japanese art. Yes. Kinshugi. In Japan, this tea ceremony, high tea ceremony tradition developed around 16th century, Senorikyu and others have refined tea into from a Chinese form of a banquet into a individualized way of creating a sacred peacemaking 
ceremony. And when Japan, with many earthquakes, T-ware like this will break, you have Kintsugi path with, where Japan lacquer masters will take the fragments. And, and first of all, they consider that something that is broken is already more valuable than when it's whole which is a profound statement to make. It's very Eastern. I think there in other Eastern cultures that may be the case too, but it's the opposite of Western perfectionism and cosmetic beauty and how we, if something breaks, we throw it away or, or we super glue it back together, pretending that it never happened. And I've noticed, Mirozov, I don't know about you, but you know, when I hear sermons, I hear bits of that. I, I hear pastors saying Jesus came to save you and you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven and that you, your life will be prosperous and perfect. And that's great damage to what Jesus actually did, which was to be resurrected as a wounded human being. And through his wounds, we are healed. Now, these are wounds that do not fester, but they actually open into a new creation. So, Kintsugi master mending the fractured bowl several generations later with Japan lacquer, which is notoriously difficult craft technique to mend and then put in gold to accentuate the fractures. And the imagination creates through the fractures, a river of gold, a mountain of gold, you know, and, and there's a landscape that the Kintsugi master intentionally depicts by using the, the fragments. What's interesting is the Kintsugi master that I work with, when he runs these workshops, he immediately says, uh, as people bring in their coffee mugs broken or whatever, he says, you came into this room to fix what you brought, right? <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah, we're excited about learning Kintsugi. He said, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and people are like puzzled, you know, they're, they're like confused. <laughs> and he said, instead, we're going to look at the fractures and name them. And until we do that, we can't start mending. I think that's what we're doing is exhibiting the kind of life that we want people to live by going through that process. So that's, to me, the best example of uh, new creation. And it makes me think that Jesus chose in his post-resurrection appearance to be a human with scars. What would happen to our scars? And that, that's a question that, with no answer. <laughs> but I tend to think that at least, at the very least, through his wounds, our wounds will look different, right? Through his wounds, because Jesus is the great Kintsugi master, and as he's mending us to not devalue what the pains and darkness that we've been through, the traumas that we've been through, but somehow in you, that, that leads into the new creation in some way. I don't fully understand it, but I, I think that's the kind of path that Kintsugi helps us to move into. 
You know, as I listen to you speak, and as I've read a, a bit about what you've written about it, you know, I've written a book where I argue quite differently about the world to come. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, maybe I have to have a third edition of this book and and think about permanence of scars in the heavenly glory and they being gilded, rather than as I was inclined to to think and still want to defend them being yeah. a kind of not coming to mind. I, I think there is, Mirazava, I don't think you're wrong. And I read that book, The End of Memory, and I, I found it very important. I, I think there is a, there's both end. I, I think there's the end of memory or uh, kind of divine amnesia <laughs> that we, we are graced with because they are normal tears, right? So, so the scars and woundings are no longer what it means to us today. You know, you know how when we look at things from the sky, you know, the same thing that would look pretty mundane from the land looks looks spectacular, you know. And that that kind of difference in vision or perspective out of this aseity of God or independence of God comes gratuity and Jesus' tears. But from the dependency of God in incarnation comes laughter and <laughs> comes humor, <laughs> this, this divine comedy, right? This inversion that happens. So out of that perspective, you know, there, and there are no more tears, but there, there may be plenty of laughter, <laughs> you know, but it, it is the reverse of how we tend to talk about God. It, it is not so much in the, the perfection of God, but the presence of God in the midst of suffering that keeps us going in some way. I, I do not know, um, but but that's that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. You know, my, my question was always, is it possible to be in the good Mm -hmm. enveloped by it and be truly joyous. Some people want to argue joy requires as a backdrop kind of negativity and liberation from something that's that's negative and then rejoicing yes. happens. Yes. And I tend to think that this may be a result of a lack of our imagination. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree but, with you. So, so the sort of beauty and the, and the goodness and, and the truth are the kind of originary goods uh, for which our souls long. Mm -hmm. And the miracle is that they are created, notwithstanding the twistedness of, of our mm -hmm. stories and brokenness of, of our lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think there's definitely something there that is, you know, as I mentioned in the book, God is not the source of beauty, but God is beauty. So, you know, and a new, new creation is not a new iPhone, you know, <laughs> new fundamentally a new newness. It is like, there's no paradigm that we understand to be this new. So, so this is something that is so new that we don't have an understanding about. So from that perspective, yeah, the, these things that as human beings, uh, we experience and we project that to the divine. But the greatest joke, maybe, is the cosmic joke, is that God chose to be a human. Yeah. So, so he subjugated himself to this anthropomorphic thinking. 
<laughs> and so to me, that's the divine comedy. That That is like, why would anybody do that? Like if we had, even out of love, if we had created something beautiful as creation and it's something fundamentally important as human beings, I wouldn't risk that. <laughs> <laughs> God creating, as you said, rightly out of gratuity from a satiety, but also love is there, right? Yeah, that's right. And and spills over into something that can be loved that's different than God. And just like Mary's not, it just spreads uncontrollably. And that God loved the world so much so that it wasn't enough to create and admire it and say it is good god somehow had to enter into that drama and it wasn't god just god's drama it was human drama you know here at the center one of the central questions that we asked that almost that that's like a like a question written on the banner mm-hmm. of what we do and it ties to our entire conversation and especially what we've been talking about toward the end now and maybe that's a good way to to end our conversation for me to ask you what kind of life <laughs> is truly worthy of our humanity that's our question and in some ways, our conversation uh, has been coming at it from different angles. It just hasn't been said yet fully, but nonetheless, we've spoken about just that. Yeah, and that the answer to that is really what I'm trying to get at through my art, knowing that there is no answer, but there's only the question that can go deeper. And uh, art can open the door to many ways of angles, perhaps, of answering that question. And I think ultimately, you know, our lives as the artwork of God, especially as a communal artwork, you know, like like a collaborative communal reality, that we are the body of Christ, which seems to be the opposite of what the public perception of Christianity is today, at least in America, is is that this is fundamentally a political, you know, device to create polarities and, you know, divisions and it's splinter. The body is like scattered and it does not possess the fruit of spirit. In fact, when you read Galatians 5, it exhibits all the qualities of spirit of the flesh. <laughs> and, and that's a huge indictment. It's a sad indictment for the project that both of us are invested in and love. But it is something that we have to be reckoning with as a church as we come out of the pandemic. That question, you know, what kind of life with a capital L do we want to be part of? And my entry point into that is, what are we making <laughs> together, collectively? What are we making? And if we are making things that are not um, producing the fruit of the Spirit, maybe we should stop doing that and make bread instead, you know, <laughs> make wine <laughs> instead, you know, and just start from the fruit of the Spirit, experience, experience through community, experience through art and beauty and mercy, work of justice, all these things can uh, can recalibrate us, I think. And so so I, I want to do that moving forward, especially after what we've been through. So for us to be the aroma of God's love 
in the world, which is such a beautiful idea to me and illustrated in Mary's gesture as a very character of God. Yes, and, and I was, I'm going to be speaking at All Angels Church this, this coming Sunday, and the passage is John 3, Nicodemus. And I, I just rediscovered that Nicodemus anoints Jesus after his death. Mm, yes, with this extravagant gift, and and there it is, you know, there's, there's this aroma that you, you're speaking of is from the highest religious authority to to Mary is both packaging this gospel, and so so the question is, how does the gospel, as the outsiders hear or experience it, do they detect that aroma? I think that's the ultimate question. <laughs> In a sense, you could see Nicodemus' story who comes at night in secrecy to Jesus to finally pouring all these, yes. all those valuables onto his dead body as a testimony of his, of his being, being taken into Jesus' life and transformed by it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Marco. It was wonderful. Thank you, Mirazov. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured artist Makoto Fujimura and theologian Miroslav Wolf. Production assistance by Martin Chan and Nathan Jowers. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, we're so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First, you could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week. 